Chapter Twenty Six of Four Girls at Chautauqua. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Four Girls at Chautauqua by Pansy. Chapter Twenty Six. Their works do follow them. Marion went alone to the services the next morning. It was in vain that she assured Yuri that Miss Morris was going to conduct one of the normal classes, and that she had heard her spoken of as unusually sparkling. Yuri shook her head. Go and hear her sparkle, then, by all means. I won't. Now that's a very inelegant word to use, but it is expressive, and when I use it, you may know that I mean it. I am tired of the whole story, and I have been cheated times enough. Look at yesterday. It was a dozen prayer meetings combined. No, I don't get caught this morning. But the subject is one that will not admit of sermonizing and prayer meetings this morning, Marion pleaded. I am specially interested in it. It is how to win and hold attention. If there is anything earthly that a ward school teacher needs to know, it is those two items. I expect to get practical help. You needn't expect anything earthly. This crowd have nothing to do with matters this side of eternity. As for the subject not admitting of sermonizing, look at the subject of blackboard caricatures. What came of that? So she went her way, and Marion, who had seen Miss Morris and had been attracted, looked her up with earnest work in view. She had an ambition to be a power in her schoolroom. Why should not this subject help her? The tent was quite full, but she made her way to a corner and secured a seat. Miss Morris was apparently engaged in introducing herself and apologizing for her subject. I tried to beg off, she said. I told them that the subject and I had nothing in common, that I was a primary class teacher, and in that line lay my work. But there is no sort of use in trying to change Dr. Vincent's mind about anything, so I had to submit. But for once in my life I remind myself of Gao. I once overheard him in conversation with a committee on lectures. They were objecting to having him lecture on temperance and pressing him to name some other subject. Choose what subject you please, gentlemen, he said at last, and I'll lecture on it, but remember what I say will be on temperance. So they have given me this subject, and I have engaged to take it, but I want you to remember that what I say will be on primary class teaching. By this time, Miss Morris had the sympathy of her audience, and had awakened an interest to see how she would follow out her program, and from the first to last she held their attention. Certain thoughts glowed vividly. I don't know who else they influenced, but I knew they roused and startled Marion, and will have much to do with her future methods of teaching. Remember, said the speaker, that you cannot live on skim milk and teach cream. The thought embodied in that brief and telling sentence was as old as time, and Marion had heard it as long ago as she remembered anything, but it never flashed before her until that moment. What an illustration! She saw herself teaching her class in botany to analyze the flowers, to classify them, to tell every minute item concerning them, and she taught them nothing to say concerning the Creator. Was this skim milk teaching? She knew so many ways in which, did she but have this belief concerning heaven and Christ and the judgment in her heart, she could impress it upon her scholars. She had aimed to be the very cream of teachers. Was she? She came back from her reverie, or rather her self questioning, 
to hear Miss Morris say, Why, one move of your hand moves all creation, and as surely does one thought of your soul grow and spread and roll through the universe. Why, you can't sit in your room alone and think a mean thought or a false thought or an unchristian thought without its influencing not only all people around you, not only all people in all the universe, but nations yet unborn must live under the shadow or the glory that the thought involves. Bold statements, these. But Marion could follow her. Intellectually, she was thoroughly posted. Had she not herself used the illustration of the tiny stream that simpered through the home meadow and went on and on and on, until it helped to surge the beaches of the ocean? But here was a principle involved that reached beyond the ocean, that ignored time, that sought after eternity. Was she following the stream? Could she honestly tell that it might not lead to a judgment that should call her to account for her non-religious influence over her scholars? Marion was growing heavy-hearted. She wanted at least to do no harm in the world if she could do no good. But if all this mountain of weight of evidence at Chautauqua proved anything, it proved that she was living a life of infidelity, for the influence of which she was to be called into judgment. No sort of use to comfort herself with the thought that she talked of her peculiar views to no one. It began to be evident that the things which she did not do were more startling than the things which she did. On the whole, no comfort came to her troubled soul through this morning session. To herself, she seemed precisely where she was when she went into that tent, only perhaps a trifle more impressed with the solemnity of all things. But, without knowing it, a great stride had been taken in her education. She was not again to be able to say, I injure no one with my belief, I keep it to myself. No man liveth to himself. The verse came solemnly to her as she went out, as though other than human voice were reminding her of it, and life began to feel like an overwhelming responsibility that she could not assume. When one begins to feel that thought in all its force, the next step is to find one who will assume the responsibility for us. She met Ruth on her way up the hill. Flossie has deserted me, Ruth explained as they met. Yuri carried her away to take a walk. Are you going to hear about John Knox? I am interested in him chiefly because of the voice that is to tell of him today. I like Mr. Hurlbert. Marion's only reply was, I don't see but you come to meeting quite as regularly, now that you are at the hotel, as you did when on the grounds. Then they went to secure their seats. I am not to attempt to tell you anything about the John Knox lecture. Indeed, I have given over telling more about the Chautauqua addresses. It is of no sort of use. One only feels like bemoaning a failure after they attempt to repeat such lectures as we heard there. Besides, I am chiefly interested at present in their effect on our girls. They listened, these two, and enjoyed as people with brains must necessarily have done. But there was more than that to it. There were consequences that will surely be met again at the last great day. Ruth, as she walked thoughtfully away, said to herself, That is the way. Live the truth. It is a different day, and the trials and experiences are different, but life must be the same. It is not the day for halfway Christianity, nor for idling. I will be an earnest Christian, for I will not dishonor the name and disgrace the memory of such men as Knox by claiming to be of their faith.
while Marion, as she turned her flushed cheeks hastily away from Ruth, not willing to show one who knew nothing about this matter, save that it was expedient to join a church, had gotten one foot set firmly toward the rock. The power that enabled that man to live that life was certainly of God, she thought. It must be true. God must be in communication with some of the souls that have lived. Is he now, and can I be one of them? Oh, I wonder if there are a favored few who have shone out as grand lights in the world and have gone up from the world to their reward. And I wonder if there is no such thing now. If the blundering creatures who call themselves by his name are nothing but miserable imitations of what was once real. Such lives as that one can understand. But how can I ever believe that Deacon Cole's life is molded by the same influence, or indeed that mine can be? Must I be a Deacon Cole Christian if I am one at all? The afternoon clouded over, and a mincing little rain began to fall. Marion stood in the tent door and grumbled over it. I wanted to hear that Mr. Hazard, she said. I rather fancy his face, and I fancy the name of his subject. I had a curiosity to see what he would do with it, and here is this rain to hinder. Ruth and Flossie had come over for the day and were waiting in the tent. Haven't you been at Chautauqua long enough to catch one of its cardinal rules, never to stay at home for rain? Flossie said. Marion looked around at her. She was putting on her rubbers. Are you really going? She asked the question in great surprise. Why, Flossie, it is going to rain hard. What of it? said Flossie lightly. I have waterproof and rubbers and umbrella, and if it gets to be too wet, I can run to a tent. If you were at home, you wouldn't think of going to church. Why, Flossie Shipley, I never knew you to go out in the rain. I thought you were always afraid you would spoil your clothes. That was because I had none already spoiled to wear, Flossie said cheerily, but that difficulty is obviated. I have spoiled two dresses since I have been here. This one now is indifferent to the rain and will be for the future. I have an improvement on that plan, though. I mean to have a rainy day dress as soon as I get home. Come, it is time we are off. I believe I am a dunce, Marion said slowly. I think it is going to rain hard. But as I have to go at home, whether it rains or shines, I suppose I can do it here. But if this were a congregation of respectable city Christians, instead of a set of lunatics, there wouldn't be a dozen out. They found hundreds out, however. Indeed, it proved to be difficult to secure seats. That address was heard under difficulties. In the first place, it would rain, not an out-and-out -out hardy shower that would at once set at rest the attempt to hold an outdoor meeting, but an exasperating little drizzle, enlivened occasionally by a few smart drops that seemed to hint business. There was a constant putting up of umbrellas and putting them down again. There was a constant fidgeting about and getting up and sitting down again to let some of the more nervous ones who had resolved upon a decided rain escape to safer quarters. Half of the people had their heads twisted around to get a peep at the sky to see what the clouds really did mean anyway. Our girls had one of the uncomfortable posts. Arrived late, they had to take what they could get, and it was some distance from the speaker, and their sight and sound were so marred by the constant changes and the whirl of umbrellas 
that Marion presently lost all patience and gave up the attempt to listen. She would have deserted altogether but for the look of eager attention on Flossie's face. Despite the annoyances, she was evidently hearing and enjoying. It seemed a pity to disturb her and suggest a return to the tent. Besides, Marion felt half ashamed to do so. It was not pleasant to give tacit acknowledgment to the fact that poor, little, unintellectual Flossie was much more interested than herself. She gave herself up to an old and favorite employment of hers, that of looking at faces and studying them, when a sudden hush that seemed to be settling over the hitherto fidgety audience arrested her attention. The speaker's voice was full of pathos, and so quiet had the place become that every word of his could be distinctly heard. He was evidently in the midst of a story, the first of which she had not heard. This was the sentence as her ears took it up. Don't cry, father, don't cry. Tonight I shall be with Jesus, and I will tell him that you did all you could to bring me there. What a tribute for a child to give to a father's love. Flossie, with her cheeks glowing and her eyes shining like stars, quietly wiped away the tears, and in her heart the resolve grew strong to live so that someone, dying, could say of her, I will tell Jesus that you did all you could to bring me there. Do you think that was what the sentence said to Marion? Quick as thought, her life flashed back to that old, dingy, weather-beaten house, to that pale-faced man with his patched clothing and his gray hairs straggling over on the coarse pillow. Her father dying. Her one friend, who had been her memory of love and care all those long years, dying. And these were the last words his lips had said. Don't cry, little girl, father's dear little girl. I am going to Jesus. I shall be there in a little while. I shall tell him that I tried to have you come. Oh, blessed father, how hard he had tried in his feebleness and weakness to teach her the way. How sure he had seemed to feel that she would follow him. And how had she wandered? How far away she was. Oh, blessed spirit of God, to seek after her all these years, through all the weak and foolish mazes of doubt and indifference, and declared unbelief, still coming with her down to this afternoon at Chautauqua, and there renewing to her her father's parting word. She had often and often thought of these words of her father's. In a sense, they had been ever present with her. Just why they should come at this time, bringing such a sense of certainty about them to her very soul, that all this was truth, God's solemn, real, unchangeable truth, and forced this conviction upon her in such a way that she was moved to say, Whereas I was blind, now I see, I cannot tell. Why Mr. Hazard was used as the instrument of such a revelation of God to her, I cannot tell. Perhaps he had prayed that his work at Chautauqua that rainy afternoon might, in some way, be blessed to the help of some struggling soul. Perhaps this was the answer to his prayer, unheard, unseen by him, as many an answer to our pleading is, and yet the answer as surely comes. Who can tell how this may be? I do not know. I know this, that Marion's heart gave a great sobbing cry as it said, Oh, Father, Father, if your God and your Christ will help me, I will, I will try to come. It was her way of repeating the old cry, Lord, I believe, help thou mine unbelief and I do know that it is written, 
Blessed are the dead which die in the Lord from henceforth. Yea, saith the Spirit, that they may rest from their labors, and their works do follow them. It was fifteen years that the weary father had been resting from his labors, and here were his works following him. I have heard that Dr. Hazard said, as he folded his papers and came down from the stand that afternoon, It was useless to try to talk in such a rain, with the prospect of more every minute. The people could not listen. It would have been better to have adjourned. Nothing was accomplished. Much he knew about it, or will know until the day when the secrets of all hearts shall be revealed. End of chapter 26 Recording by Tricia G.